This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We are talking about uh, texting and driving. And apparently, we're, we're still doing it. In fact, I noticed a couple of people on the roads just yesterday. No, they weren't texting and driving. They actually had their cell phones to their ear talking into it while driving. And maybe they didn't have Bluetooth. That's fine. The issue is they're actually driving while talking on the cell phone, which is a no-no if you're holding it. Hey, you want a passenger to hold that cell phone? Go right ahead. You want to activate your Bluetooth? Go right ahead. I do it all the time. It's phenomenal. But as soon as you pick up that phone and do anything with it, you can just be holding it. Doesn't even have to be on. You don't have to be doing anything on that phone. Just holding it can get you into trouble. Well, according to a new poll from the CAA, get a load of this. 33% of Canadians, that's one in three on the road right now, still text at red lights. So if you're at a red light right now, and there's five or six cars around you, Odds are two people are texting right now in their vehicle at that red. Is that not insane? Of course it is. We know the ramifications. We know the penalties monetarily and with the demerit points. We know what could happen in terms of crashes, in terms of injuries, and in terms of death while distracted driving. We've heard stories We've watched them on TV, read them in newspapers and magazines. We've read them ourselves here on CHML News all the time. Talking to people like Klaus Wagner at Hamilton Police Service on the day-in and day-out incidents that they report and they charge people with distracted driving. Here to talk about this latest poll from the CAA is the Managing Director of Communications and Government Relations with CAA National. His name is Ian Jack, and he joins us now. Ian, how are you? Hey, I'm great. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us on the show. Um, so, surprised or not with this 33% statistic that says 33% of us Canadians uh, are texting while out of red. Is that high or low, or is that kind of something you were uh, um, thinking that that's probably a, a number that we expected? Well, I, sadly, I'm not that surprised, really. I mean, I think anecdotally, you were just mentioning it yourself uh, the other day, seeing people with their phone at their ear. I mean, uh, a lot of us have noticed at, uh, at uh, stop lights and stop signs, people doing that. And, you know, uh, part of this is the annoyance factor, of course. There's that five-second delay, the light changes, the person doesn't move, you're just about to honk your horn, they finally look up and away they go. So, you know, there's an annoyance factor and a slowdown factor. It's costing us all time on the road, but the, the bigger issue, really is and you put your finger on it is is the distracted driving and the and and the injuries and deaths that that can cause and the thing about doing it at the red light i mean there's a, there's a slightly hopeful message there right that that more and more people are figuring out that as they're barreling down the highway not such a bright idea to text but they're still doing it when they're stopped. You know, the hopeful thing, their thinking has evolved a bit, eh? They've kind of got that when the vehicle's moving, you shouldn't tax. But the, now they're thinking, but it's okay if I'm stopped. I can't kill anybody when I'm stopped at a red light, right? And that's true. 
But what's also true is there's a lot of science going on these days. They call it uh, cognitive behavior uh, that says that uh, when you finish a task, you're still distracted by it for a number of seconds, not for minutes and hours, but for a number of seconds afterwards. And the latest cognitive science on driving and texting is that for as long as 27 seconds after you finish texting or reading a text, your mind is still at least partially on that. And I think that also rings true for us all, right? It depends on the kind of text it is, but if it's like a nasty one or whatever, your your mind's turning it over. So you're at the stoplight, uh, you look at the text, you put down the phone, as the light turns green, you think you're doing everything right, but the fact is, as you're heading through that intersection, you're still distracted because of what you were just doing. And I think that that's the real message here, and the real thing we want to try to get across to people is that, you know, thanks a lot for not texting while you're moving. Um, but please consider not texting while you're stopped on the road either way, either because you're about to start moving, and when you do, uh, you're still probably going to be distracted. Excellent statistics, read the mental shift, if you will, 27 or 30 seconds after you send that text. And, and another issue on top of that is, after you send that text at that red light, and for the next 27 seconds you're thinking about that text, there could be another text that comes in that you are going to be you know, even com- more compelled to respond to or, or at least even look at. That's it, and as I said, some t- you know, some some not everyone is a twenty-seven second uh, distraction, right? I mean, there might be just a okay or love you or right. what have you, right? Yeah. That's okay, but it's it's the um, you're picking up the kids, right? No, I thought you were, you know, that kind of exchange, right? Um, that is, uh, you know, that really engages you, or you're in some kind of a you know texting uh, fight with somebody or what have you, right? Those are the ones that really uh, engage your brain to an extent that just is not not healthy because, you know, uh, it, it accelerating through an intersection is, is uh, sort of prime time for collisions, right? Um, and, and you really want to be focused on what's going on at that four-way stop or at the, at the advanced turn or whatever that, that you're about to do. That's a good point, too, because many a time, you know, I've pulled over to the side to respond to, uh, you know, a text that I think is going to be important because you get a text, you know, you hear the ding go off and you're thinking, I wonder who that is. Uh, And I think many people, obviously, according to the study uh, at a red light, especially, will grab the phone and and kind of check out, you know, who has texted them. Um, But for me, while I'm driving, and I do have a trick that I've used uh, that I'll I'll, I'll share with our listeners in a couple of minutes. But if I do hear the ding and I feel that, uh, you know, something has occurred earlier in the day, and I I think this is going to be in response to that, I'll pull over, respond to the text, and and away I go. I'm still in within that, you know, 20, 27 second kind of range, obviously. Um, the fact of the matter is that it's pulled over. It's it's not at a red light. You're not anticipating the light to change. You're in a, I think at least, a different state of mind. Is that is that yeah. accurate? I think so. And if you put a clock on, on, let's say, on you when you do that, right? So you put down, so you have pulled over, which is the thing to do, right? Um, you put down the phone, you look up, you look around, you put on your turn signal, and then you pull back into traffic. Right. And all of that is eating up 10 seconds, say whatever it is, 10, 15 seconds. And all of that is good because that's getting you focused back uh, on the thing in hand. I mean, there's nothing worse, again, than you're staring down at your lap, at your texts. You miss the green light. Somebody honks. You're like, oh, crap. Right, you kind of throw the phone aside and, and, <laughs> and put your foot in the accelerator because you're embarrassed now and you want to get moving, right, and not get honked at again. Uh, that's bad news potentially, uh, really bad news, right? Because, as you say, you're just 
<laughs> you're, you're through the intersection before you're back fully engaged in right. the task of driving and looking around and looking for hazards. Meantime, you could have a pedestrian who's trying to, you know, trying to beat the, you know, the, the flashing hand to get across the intersection, and you're already in the intersection. We could do a whole show on pedestrian at, uh, and, oh, and yeah. texting, right? And yeah, every, everybody on the road uh, these days has their issues with their phones. They're so addictive, right, including people walking out into traffic when they, when they shouldn't. But uh, again, we know how that's going to end. It's going to be the motorist who's going who's to cause the damage, even if it's the pedestrian's fault. And um, nobody wants that on their conscience, I think, right? So, yeah, in, in all kinds of ways, uh, you know, putting the phone away while in motion is, is a good idea, but especially so when you're driving it through a, a couple of thousand pounds of, uh, well, mostly plastic these days, but metal <laughs> plastic. We're chatting with uh, Ian Jack, Managing Director of Communications and Government Relations, CAA National, here on the Scott Thompson Show on AM 900 CHML. Rick, in for Scott this week. Um, that 33%, is that comparable to any other studies that the CAA has done regarding texting or distracted driving? Um, it's roughly comparable to where we've tested in the past on this. Again, we, we do see uh, a hopeful sign in, in that more and more, it's, uh, more and more people are getting the message that uh, you shouldn't text while driving. And that's what's a little bit different about this, right, is a lot of people would say, but it's okay to do it when I'm stopped because I'm not actually driving. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting still. Um, uh, and yet it still is, it still is a danger. So, no, the numbers, uh, the numbers about what we would have uh, expected, it's obviously, you know, too high. If we came out with a poll saying 33% of Canadians admit they still drink and drive, I think we'd, we'd be appalled, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that's a message that got through probably in a previous generation. And we're just trying to do the same thing now with texting, right? That, that, and again, I go back to my parents' day when people used to actually say, one for the road, when it came to alcohol, right? <laughs> yeah. Nobody says that now. No, no. And everybody's got a designated drinker and, uh, sorry, designated driver. Interesting slip. Um, I got teenagers. They just, they don't think of it. They sleep over at their friends' houses. They don't get behind the wheel and, and, and drive. It's been a, a really excellent kind of cultural shift and people still get out and have fun by the way right it's mm-hmm. not that there's we're, it's not a no fun society a no drinking society but that shift happened over what 10 or 20 years starting in what let's say the 70s probably to the 90s when i was growing up right that whole shift happened and um, we just need to do the same kind of thing with with texting right and uh, we'll get there and again, there's hopeful signs. Like I say, people, uh, not too many people now say, yeah, sure, I'm driving 110 down the QBW, no problem, why not text? No, nobody thinks that anymore. Yeah. Right? We're starting to hide it. We're putting it in our lap. We're sneaking, it's like sneaking a cigarette. You're sneaking a text at a stoplight now, right? Um, but that's good. We're moving in the right direction. Yeah, at least people know that it's wrong, and ultimately let's hope they just keep their phones away. And, and that leads me to my last question. Do you have, does the CAA have any tips for people who are tempted by their cell phones while driving? Well, look, if, if you're a real, I mean, you know, you, if, if you're a real cigarette addict and you're trying to quit, you don't carry smokes with you. Um, and, um, you know, put the phone away, put it in the back seat, let's say, while you're driving. If you really found over time that you tell yourself you're not going to do it, but you keep grabbing the phone anyway every time it bings, you can put it on silent mode. Um, it's about managing the distractions, eh? I mean, there's no society in which none of us will ever, ever, 
ever, you know, not need to look at some urgent thing, right? But it's like 90% of the stuff that we look at, we don't need to be looking at it while we're in the car, or at least while we're on the road, right? And um, we should all just try, including myself, to just make a little bit more effort to uh, put it on silent mode, put it aside, recognize that, you know, as opposed to kind of the societal norm, which again, in the old days, if you didn't say yes to the one for the road drink, you were kind of a wet blanket, you weren't fun. The thing about texting that people have in their head is that if they don't respond to their friend or their spouse or whoever within five to ten minutes, they're sending a message. They must be mad at them, mm-hmm. right? Um, no, that, that's the kind of attitude I think that we need to work on changing a bit. Maybe you're in a car and you're just trying to stay safe, and you will get back to your, your loved one or whoever it is, but it might take 20 minutes because you're actually uh, on the highway, right? Or you're, you're driving from your, uh, your workplace to your house. Um, and I think that's where we need to get to. We need to give ourselves permission to take a few more minutes. It's like, you know, slow cooking, slow texting. It's okay. It's okay to wait the 20 or 30 minutes, right? Um, and I think if we, we all start doing that a little bit more, uh, we, may, we may get some time back in our lives. Um, <laughs> I had my phone break on me a couple of weeks ago, and I didn't have one for two days. And, uh, <laughs> you actually, felt... It was actually kind of a pleasant experience, I must say. <laughs> um, anyway, that's unrealistic in the long term in the society we live in. We all get that, yeah. but... Uh, we can probably afford to just take a few extra minutes to respond to texts and to do it, like you say, at the side of the road if it is an urgent thing, like, wait a minute, who's picking up the kids again? We all get that you need to figure that out, um, but you can maybe, uh, if you know that's coming, you know, take a break halfway through your drive, like I say, from your workplace to the school or to your house just to check, right, at the side of the road, um, and uh, acknowledge as well that absent that urgent thing you need to figure out, stuff can probably wait 10 or 20 or 30 minutes. Good stuff. Ian Jack, thanks for joining us today. Enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you, Rick. Take care. You too. Ian Jack, Managing Director of Communications and Government Relations, CAA National, giving us some uh, tidbits of info following a CAA study that shows 33% of Canadians who say they've texted while at a red light in the last month. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The uh, Department of Canadian Heritage is currently reviewing the ultra-successful Own the Podium program. Specifically, they're looking at targeted excellence. What does that mean? Well, it's defined as a subset of athletes and or teams that have a high probability of attaining Olympic medals, either at the Olympics or the Paralympic Games. And to provide those athletes or teams with focused support and funding to attain those results. So break that all down, the Canadian Olympic Committee, through the Department of Canadian Heritage, are saying these teams, these particular athletes have the best chance at a medal. Let's give them a little more support. Let's direct a little more funding their way to make sure they own the podium. Get a medal. On the podium, CEO Anne Merklinger is saying that the government of Canada's decision to deploy a targeted excellence approach has delivered in spades. The data speaks for itself. It's been incredibly successful. She goes on to say, that said, can we improve? That's the value of this review. On the podium has been tasked with delivering the targeted approach, but how does the whole system get better? That's the kind of thoughtful dialogue I would say needs to happen once the sport, or once the report, rather, is tabled. So they're going to review the Own the Podium process and whether or not it's going to make more sense 
to divert more dollars to more athletes instead of having this targeted excellence approach. Eleanor Harvey is an Olympic fencer from Hamilton who, in her Olympic debut at the Rio Games this past summer, beat the world's number one ranked fencer, Ariana Arrigo, to advance to the quarterfinals of the women's individual foil event. The 21-year-old Harvey placed seventh in the competition, Canada's best ever Olympic result in an individual fencing event. And Eleanor Harvey joins us on the Scott Thompson Show. Eleanor, how are you? Hi, I'm good, thanks. How are you? Not too bad. Uh, thanks for joining us on today's program. Where are you right now? Are you still competing, training, doing something regarding fencing? Yeah, actually right now I'm in Toronto um, coaching and training a bit at a, at a camp. Nice. So you're directing the future fencers of Canada. Yes. How, how's that going? It's, it's a different perspective. Usually I'm the one that's uh, <laughs> attending the training camps and um, trying to get the most out of them, and I'm trying to um, give the most this time, yeah. all at the same time training. So Excellent. So it's a, it's a win-win for both you and for uh, the younger uh, fencers out there. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So let's talk about the uh, the Own the Podium program. I know you, you don't really have a lot of say into how it works, but how has it worked for you? Um, well, I haven't had Own the Podium yet. Um, we are applying to get it this year based on um, our team results last year and my results at the Olympics. So we're still waiting to find out um, whether I'm going to be able to get that funding or not. Um so I don't actually have any personal experience with it yet, but, but it would make it would make a huge difference for our program, without a doubt. And obviously, finishing seventh, beating the number one um, fencer in, in the world at the Olympic Games in Rio, having the best ever finish at an Olympiad for an individual fencer, uh, that has to equal you know all the check marks you would need to get funding, would it not? Yeah. Um, for for us. Um, We've, we've been working for the, the past four years since the last Olympics um, to improve our team world ranking and our individual world rankings like a little bit at a time. So for our team world ranking, we've gone from, I don't know what we were in, in 2012, but now we're ranked seventh in the world, which is pretty high hmm. for a Canadian team. Um, so already that shows that we have a chance of doing well um, at the team event if we qualify for Tokyo and uh, I'm right now ranked 11th in the world, which is the highest I've ever been ranked. So the the trajectory that we're, our entire team is showing shows that eventually we're going to, we're going to be able to get to the podium and it's something that it's just going to happen. And so it makes sense that we would get on the podium because that's, that's the direction we're all heading. 2020, as we know, obviously doing the math is four years away, or I guess less than four years away. Um, when do you find out w- whether or not you get that funding? Um, well, I know my coach had a meeting with them, I think, this this month or earlier, either this month or last month. So I'm pretty sure we're going to find out within the next couple months. And based on that, we can kind of figure out where we're going to put um, that money into, and it'll probably be towards bringing us together because we don't all train together all the time. So bringing us together um, to get more intense bouting, bringing us, bringing in um, foreign coaches that have different experiences and that have seen us grow as, as a Canadian team that 
like we we didn't really have a strong Canadian team and they've the other coaches from other countries have taken note of us and there is some interest in um in other coaches in in bringing them in to train with us and to go to different international training camps so it would open up a lot of resources and um ideas that we didn't have necessarily access to um but but in terms of better coaches better trainers is that at the end of the day what this funding would go towards so the thing that it would really help us with would be to be able to bring enough coaches to each competition so even last year um the entire year was the qualification period for rio and at a lot of the competitions i didn't have a coach there we couldn't afford our budget didn't have enough money to send a coach to every competition so my teammates and I, who were competing with each other for a spot at the Olympics, we had to coach each other um, instead of having coaches there to support us. So that would be one of the biggest things, having enough coaches at each competition um, to, to help us. And it makes a huge difference having a coach there or not. Oh, I would say that, that's, that's a wow factor. I did not know that. That mm-hmm. seems almost wrong. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> that, where our, our funding just, wasn't enough to send them everywhere, so we were alone. <laughs> Have you spoken to other fencers, other athletes from other countries about you know what they get, what kind of funding they receive? Yeah, most. Um, well, a lot of the the European uh, athletes, like fencers and um, Asian fencers, it's they're professional athletes. That's their job. Like they get they get a, a salary to be an athlete. So it's all they're doing. So of course, when they go to competitions. Um, their their coaches are fully funded to travel with them, and that makes that's just a huge advantage right there that we we don't have. Not not only are we not full time athletes, we're um, we're as close to full time as we can be, while also being students, while also working, um, while having to make money ourselves or find a way to you know be in school while also being an athlete. So that would really help um, during competition. No doubt about it. Are you supportive of the OTP review um, in in terms of the targeted excellence? I understand what the Olympic Committee wants to do to say, hey, you know, our best shots at the podium are, you know, athlete A, B, and C. We should give them a little more funding. Uh, or, you're, or are you more in favor of, hey, let's just spread the funding around to everyone so everyone has a chance to get to the podium? Um. Well, I think there's definitely drawbacks and benefits to both but um i think it would make sense kind of like a happy medium like finding athletes that are yeah that are ready to make the podium or that are already making the podium um but also the athletes that are kind of in between like with that extra money like teams like ours that could that um haven't ever made a podium but show the signs that we will uh and i'm sure there are lots of lots of other athletes in Canada that are like that because um, there are just not that many professional full-time athletes, especially in sports that aren't as popular. So I think it would be more helpful if it was directed towards the, the, the sports that don't receive as much funding from the government and um, that aren't as popular so that they really can't afford to do all the traveling and all the training that they need without that extra money. We have uh, just a minute or two with Eleanor Harvey, Hamilton native and uh, Olympic fencer who finished seventh in Rio, Canada's best ever Olympic result at an individual fencing event. What did Rio do for you in terms of your personal development? Well, I guess the most obvious thing was that it was a huge confidence booster. 
Um, I had never fenced Rico before, and that was my first time ever fencing her. And so, uh, as it showed in the boat, it was I was pretty scared at the beginning, and I wasn't fencing very well. But once I got into it and felt that, oh, okay, I'm equal with this person right now, like it made me believe that if I can beat number one, I can beat anyone. Really, it 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 really um, made me more confident and sure in that what I'm doing right now, my training is paying off and that it's um, my teammates were all there cheering for me and they experienced this whole thing with me and we're all at a really equal level. So it shows to them that well, if Eleanor can do it, we can do it too. So I think it really helped all of us. What's the best quality? I mean, if there's a young person who's kind of debating whether or not to pursue fencing as even a hobby, really, what's the best quality to have? Um, I think one of the most important things is adaptability. So being able to look at a boat, um, a challenging boat, like kind of like a puzzle. You have to try things out. You have to know that you're going to get hit sometimes, especially if they have an action that you, you can't figure out. You just need to be able to approach it with an open mind and um, have the have the determination to not only stick to what works, but to to try new things until you find something that does work. So adaptability is super, super important for fencing. I know you said you're at a, a camp right now in Toronto. When's your uh, next competition? Um, my next World Cup is in the middle of January, and it's in Algeria. <laughs> and I, I actually fence on my birthday. Oh, no way. Yep. <laughs> well, good luck with that. Uh, it's Thank been, uh, right now so far, an amazing career, and you're just on the cusp of greatness, I think, obviously, with your performance in Rio. So continued success. Uh, enjoy the rest of the holidays. Have a great Happy New Year, and we'll talk to you down the road. Thanks a lot. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Russian officials, for the first time, have admitted to mass doping in the country's sports system, but have dismissed suggestions that the institutional conspiracy was state-sponsored. This erupted out of the New York Times yesterday. The final part of the World Anti-Doping Agency's independent report into doping in Russia this month provided exhaustive evidence of an elaborate doping scheme, but officials at the time denied it was a state-backed program. The report found that more than a 1,000 Russian competitors in more than 30 sports were involved in a conspiracy to conceal positive drug tests over a period of five years. The acting director general of Russia's anti-doping agency told the Times it was an institutional conspiracy, but added that top officials were not involved. Russia has since said those comments were taken out of context. More than 100 Russian athletes were barred from competing at the Rio Olympics this past summer, after the IOC set criteria for Russian athletes to meet, including a clean doping past and sufficient testing at international events. So Russia finally saying that, for the first time, they have admitted to mass doping in the country's sports system, but at the same time dismissing suggestions it was state-sponsored. Peter Donnelly is a professor of faculty of kinesiology and physical education at the University of Toronto and the Center for Sport Policy and joins us now. Peter, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Um, is this, um, was this expected? 
Uh, I think it was expected to statements like this. Um, Russia knows that they're not going to get back into world sports unless they uh, they do start to take some responsibility for what's been happening, and uh, and they're managing that in an interesting way at the moment. <laughs> you say in an interesting way because they're saying, yeah, we did we did do it, but the government really didn't know anything about it. Yeah, and I think, you know, they're taking a very specific... Uh, when they talk about the state, it seems that they are uh, uh, using a very narrow different definition of the state, which means Putin and his immediate circle are the state, and it's nothing to do with the government. So, uh, so when they say that it could be anybody up to, you know, that next tier be below Putin's inner circle, but you know, what, it strikes me that ver- it's very clear that Putin said uh, we didn't do very well in uh, in Vancouver. We are hosting the next Olympics. We want lots of medals, and the message went down uh, to uh, to that next level. Now, we've had the McLean report come out to basically say that, you know, this was a, or the McLaren report, sorry, that this was a state-sponsored, a, a corrupted, unprecedented uh, doping scandal. Uh, should we at all believe that the state was not involved? No, I don't think so. I mean, the state was clearly involved, but, you know, if you take a very narrow definition of the state, perhaps there were no no immediate involvement from Putin and and that immediate circle, but clearly government and the sport uh, agencies which are funded by government were all very much involved in this. Apart from admitting to wrongdoing, what does the Russian Olympic Federation and all the sports that reside underneath it have to do to uh, clear its name, so to speak? Well, I think WADA, is uh, the World Anti-Doping Agency, is still trying to figure out uh, how to uh, to reform the whole process because the whole process um, is completely vulnerable to this kinds of things. It's not just Russia, it's a number of other countries. Who, uh, and when it's been the sport agencies themselves, the international sport agencies, and it's been uh, governments who have been responsible for, uh, for doing the testing. And, uh, and they've been massaging that in a whole variety of ways, whether it's the uh, therapeutic therapeutic use exemptions that have been used widely in uh, North America and the UK, or whether it's uh, something else, you know, everybody's been massaging the system in their own ways. And what's probably needed is some completely arm's length agency that has no vested interest in a particular country's success or a particular sport's success. So why doesn't the World Anti-Doping Agency set up their own testing program during the Olympic Games and other sporting events. Is, does it come down to funding? It does. I think if somebody has to pay for it, and it, so far it's been the International Olympic Committee and national governments who have been funding it, um, but they've been funding it with probably much more hands-on uh, than uh, than was necessary, and I think it, they need to be funded in uh, in a way that is much more arm's length. And we're probably talking, you know, multi-millions of dollars here. I, well, I would hope not. Um, <laughs> I think that we're, uh, uh, you know, we need we need to take a, ho- a hard look at uh, at what's going on, and you know, we may need to consider uh, athlete health as uh, one of the criteria. Um, 
you know, that uh, if, if athletes are going to be doing everything they possibly can in order to win, uh, maybe they should be under some kind of doctor's supervision. Um, maybe the, uh, the, the doping list, the list of banned substances, is far too complex and, uh, and uh, doesn't keep up to date with rapid changes in the pharmaceutical industry. So, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that really need to be sorted out and thought through in a much more more thorough way than uh, than what WADA, which was a very rapid reaction to uh, to some major doping scandals in the late 1990s. We're chatting with uh, Peter Donnelly, Professor Faculty of Kinesiology and Physical Education at the University of Toronto and the Centre for Sport Policy here on the Scott Thompson Show on AM 900 CHML. Uh, Rick, in for Scott this week. Are dopers still ahead of the game? Are they still beating water for the most part in terms of uh, new technology or new drugs that are undetected? It's generally accepted that that's the case, but uh, the strategy of holding on to samples for five and ten years and uh, and uh, retesting them as new uh, new testing principles become available has really uh, put a put a uh, a dent in in that strategy so uh, um, while they might immediately be ahead uh, in five years time there may be a way of testing for it and you lose your medal but that's still uh, is a problem for the athletes who did come third, fourth, fifth, sixth in in those events, and uh, and uh, who missed out on that whole possibility of uh, of uh, hearing their national anthem, being on the podium, uh, being celebrated at the time of the Olympics. The uh, McLaren report found, uh, I mean, we're talking uh, hundreds of Russian competitors, more than a thousand Russian competitors in more than 30 sports were involved in this conspiracy. Uh, Is Russia going to be tainted for a generation? How long will the uh, will that black mark last for? Well, I mean, we were the we were the first country to be tainted with the Ben Johnson uh, situation. And we we did a a whole uh, national expose on ourselves uh, in that way and and it still gets mentioned it still gets mentioned every now and again uh, uh, the Ben Johnson situation and that was back in 1988 so I, I think it's going to last a long time it's going to be uh, but um, the thing that concerns me most at the moment is if you have got hundreds or uh, perhaps as Russia has said now a thousand athletes who have been involved in this um, why is it only the athletes that are being punished in this? If this was state-sponsored, we don't know how much pressure was put on those athletes, whether they were told that get with the doping program or you're off the team. Uh, we, we have no idea what, those, uh, what kind of uh, pressure was put on the athletes, and we need to find a way to get to uh, the officials and the, uh, and the pharmaceutical industry and that, that kind of thing. You know, it, we shouldn't just be punishing the athletes given this whole conspiracy has um the olympics themselves the olympic movement um shed its uh whether truthful or not shed its uh um, cloak of uh you know cheating athletes or obviously we're always going to find uh you know an athlete or two or three or four who are uh, not playing according to the rules but for the most part it seems at least the perception is the olympics are a clean sport they've kind of shed that cloak uh I think they're trying to scramble to get that back as quickly as possible. Uh, 
which is why uh, uh, the reports of the uh, of Thomas Bach, the head of the International Olympic Committee, uh, being furious about uh, uh, this whole scandal situation because it, I mean, it really does af- affect everything. Except, you know, we we didn't pay too much attention to it when uh, when baseball, you know, was. Uh, setting home run records uh, with uh, with uh, athletes who are doped in various ways and uh, you know maybe maybe the larger public doesn't care that much in terms of the olympics though i mean this is supposed to be yes bigger stronger faster but do it in a clean way and we're obviously talking about uh, in some cases billions of dollars in sponsorship money from companies who are pouring in to support these games and we're talking about uh uh, hundreds of millions of dollars from uh, from taxpayers in various countries to support the development of uh, of their high performance athletes, and that is uh, that is all uh, uh, under jeopardy at the moment. I, I mean, I su- I suspect they will be they'll find a way to work this out, but it is under jeopardy. I mean, it's a huge thing for uh, for television broadcasting. Uh, you know the. Uh, and NBC in the United States uh, uh, pays huge amounts of money to uh, to broadcast the Olympics, more than all of the other television broadcasters around the world put together. Uh, and they pay it because it's it's a great way to promote their full lineup. And uh, and uh, you know they see they see the advertising as being as being worth it for that. We're chatting with uh, Peter Donnelly, Professor of Faculty of Kinesiology and Physical Education at the University of Toronto and the Centre for Sport Policy. Um, does this admission from Russian officials pave the way for many or even some of these athletes to participate in 2020 in Tokyo? Oh, I hope so. I hope so. I mean, like I say, uh, I, I think we're not at all sure uh, how much constraint was on the athletes to participate in the program. And certainly in some sports, there was no pressure at all. I mean, the, uh, you know, nobody was asking the sailors to, <laughs> to, uh, to uh, 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 be involved in a doping program, you know, or those kind of sports. But, uh, but I think uh, we, we, need to, we need to nurture the athletes. We need to have an independent uh, uh, doping program that is out of the hands of Russian government, Russian officials, um, uh, and, uh, and is, is open and transparent and, and, uh, and is, is able to be seen to be uh, independent and clean. Can you envision Olympic Games, whether it is 2018 or 2020 or beyond, being completely clean, i.e. no athlete testing positive? I mean that's the hope. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can we can hope we can hope and and I think if they if they if they work through this crisis properly that's certainly a, a, a possibility I would hope for. Peter, thanks for the time today. Enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you. You too. Peter Donnelly, professor, faculty of kinesiology and physical education at the U of T and the Center for Sport Policy. Not too surprised at the admission of guilt, really, when you boil down to it. Russian officials, for the first time, admitting to mass doping in the country's sports system, but dismissing suggestions that the quote-unquote institutional conspiracy was state-sponsored. And to that effect, today, the Kremlin saying it would check the veracity of the report to make sure 
that Russia's top anti-doping official, the acting director general of the anti-doping agency in that country, had been accurately quoted. So even today, the Kremlin's saying, maybe that person was misquoted. Maybe their comments are misrepresented, taken out of context. A Kremlin spokesperson saying that uh, Russian authorities would investigate whether these were actual words and that what context they had been spoken before deciding how to respond. Going on to say the Kremlin had from the beginning denied that the Russian state had been involved in doping. The spokesman saying, quote, we are not inclined to consider this information as firsthand. The accuracy of these words first needs to be checked. Very, very interesting. It's almost like a half admission. Yeah, we did it. Or at least the acting director general of Russia's anti-doping agency saying, yeah, it was an institutional conspiracy. We did it. We cheated. The more than 1,000 Russian athletes in more than 30 sports who were caught, yeah, they cheated. But it wasn't state-sponsored. And maybe even those comments were taken out of context. I don't know. To me, it seems that the Russians are saying, we did it, but uh, only a couple of people knew about it. I, I, I really don't buy it. And I'm not suggesting that Putin himself ordered, you know, the, the more than 1,000 athletes, hey, you're going to take drugs. You're going to take performance enhancers. But it is clear to me that after they just flopped in Vancouver in 2010... Putin and the rest of the people in the Kremlin, the higher-ups, the directors of the sports federations in Russia said, all right, this is how we are going to rebound in our home Olympiad in Sochi just a couple of years ago. This is how we're going to do it. And, uh, well, (laughs) they did it with a bang. No doubt about it. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Canadians will ring in the new year with a number of tax changes at the federal and provincial levels. The Trudeau government is ending child tax credits for arts, fitness, education, and textbooks. Also, canceling income splitting for families that was introduced by the previous conservative government. Several other changes by the federal government will affect life insurance, business owners selling their companies, Uh, Some mutual funds as well. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation has released its annual report crunching the numbers on New Year's tax changes for Canadians. And the result at the end of the day is going to mean a tax break for most Canadians in 2017. Here to explain is Aaron Woodrick, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and he joins the show now. Aaron, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing, right? Not too bad. Thanks for taking uh, some time to uh, talk to us about these tax changes, these implications uh, going forward starting on January 1st. Is there one that is at the top of the list that's going to affect uh, all, if not most, of Canadians? Yeah, I should sort of explain what we do here every year. It's a report. It doesn't capture every tax change. It's really hard to do because some types of taxes, uh, I mean, it, it's hard to capture what the average family pays. So what we try and focus on are the government. Uh, entitlement programs and taxes that the average household will pay. So that's mainly things like income taxes 
or in the case this year, the child Canada Child Benefit that any family that has kids under six will receive. So that is actually the biggest thing this year. Uh, folks who will know uh, under the Harper government that each uh, family with a child under six would get $160, every family in Canada. The new Trudeau government has changed it a bit. They have tweaked it so it is based on how much money you make. So the less money you earn as income, the more you get per child. And because of that, uh, most families making less than 200000 are going to see a substantial increase somewhere between one and $2,000 in terms of uh, additional benefits for their children. So a two-child single-income family in Ontario earning $60,000 per year will pay $122 less in taxes and receive an additional $1,824 in CCB payments, not including the Ontario carbon tax. Yes, that's right. That's the best way to frame it. A part of this is extra money coming to you, and a little bit of it is paying less tax because this new revised uh, child care benefit is not taxable, unlike the old one. But you did like something very important, Rick, which is the carbon tax. Mm-hmm. That's something that's not captured in this report, and it's something I think a lot of Ontarians need to buckle up for. Um, it's not yet clear just what impact this will have. The way this uh, cap-and-trade system is being brought in, it's very uh, opaque, it's very vague. We're not sure yet how much, but it will certainly cost something. So, uh, all that extra money Ontarians are getting, they may want to hang on to a bit of it because you may have to get some of it back <laughs> sooner than you like. Exactly. Is there an educated guess you can make in terms of the implications or the ramifications it's going to have? Yeah, right now it's probably in the hundreds of dollars for the average Ontario family. But uh, again, this is an escalating type of program. So over the years, it could certainly start to add up quickly. And how does that compare with what Alberta is doing with its carbon tax? Yeah, they have something at a similar rate. Uh, it might be a little bit more. Um, there are different systems, of course. Uh, folks who want to get into the minutia of d- different carbon tax systems. Alberta's is a is a price on all carbon in Ontario. It's a cap and trade system. Uh, you know, we're not fans of either of them, to be honest with you, Rick. Mm-hmm. But the Alberta system has the at least the benefit of being fair. In Ontario, you know, this can be easily manipulated to favor you know certain industries, certain companies. Uh, we think that is not good news for most Ontario taxpayers. What's happening with EI premiums? Yeah, EI premiums, good news on that front. They are going to be reduced, so uh, that savings up to about $130 per year. Um, unfortunately, it was going to probably be an even bigger cut to EI premiums, but the Trudeau government decided to make some changes to make EI a little more easily accessible, uh, so that means the cut is not quite as big as it might have been. The uh, tax changes in 2017, uh, as I said, going to result in uh, a tax break for most Canadians in 2017, but the higher income earners are not going to get that much of a break. No, they will certainly be paying more, in some cases uh, several thousand dollars more, depending on the province. Uh, you know, I, I recognize that the rich are not the most sympathetic uh, group. Uh, they have more money than the rest of us, so people say, why can't they pay more? But, you know, we think it's very important, especially right now, we have a new president coming to the United States who says he's going to aggressively cut taxes down there. You know, that has ramifications for, you know, brain drain for our best and brightest and for our businesses. So if we're not competitive with our tax levels, that can start to create problems for our economy as a whole. Aaron Woodrook is our guest, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, looking at tax changes that are going to be coming into effect in 2017 and how they're going to impact you and your household. What about first-time home buyers in Ontario? A lot of attention in terms of the stress tests over the last few months, uh, you know, rising costs of housing prices in the GTA and certainly here in Hamilton. First-time home buyers in Ontario are going to see refunds on a land transfer tax grow, right? Yes, that's, and that's certainly a benefit to a lot of Ontarians, the young Ontarians buying their first home. 
you know, we don't think it really addresses the core problem. There is a supply problem here. Uh, a lot of it is there's simply such high demand. It is bidding up the prices. Um, it is, is bad in most of the metropolitan areas in Ontario. Certainly Toronto is the worst. Uh, but, you know, just another example of the rising cost of living that a lot of us are facing here in Ontario. One of the uh, bullet points that was released by uh, the CTF in this in this new report uh, that really caught my attention, a B.C. couple with no kids earning $100,000 will see a small tax cut of 25 bucks. Yeah, I think what we see there, uh, Rick, is really just the sort of cancelling out of uh, a couple of tax changes. It's essentially they're, they're square, they're not paying a lot more, um, again, the higher the income, there tends to be a, at least a slight tax hike uh, for, for regardless of which promise you're in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in that case, you know, that was just to sort of uh, capture the fact that uh, for some higher income earners, they're not getting a break. They're not really getting much of an extra hike either. They're just sort of even. Two of the provinces that are, are really slashing taxes or seeing the largest tax reductions would be Newfoundland and Quebec. What's going on there? Well, you're well one out of two there, Rick. Newfoundland's actually got a lot of tax hikes. Oh, they they're going the to, ones, or they're going the other way. Yeah, they are they are the by far the largest uh, tax hikes in the country this year. Uh, some folks at the higher income brackets are paying three, four thousand dollars extra, quite a bit. Whereas Quebec, which is really interesting, Rick, because uh, a lot of people see Quebec as the best comparison to Ontario. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, Quebec had a reputation as a high tax jurisdiction. Well, uh, Quebec has balanced their budget and they're cutting taxes. So uh, again, that uh, should certainly raise some eyebrows here in Ontario. Very different fiscal situation here in Ontario, Queens Park. So hopefully, uh, taxpayers. Uh, should encourage the government at Queen's Park to follow Quebec's lead, bounce the budget, and, and start paying uh, cutting taxes as well. So what's Quebec doing right that Ontario is doing wrong, apart from cap-and-trade? Yeah, <laughs> I guess the thing is that Quebec, for as I said, for a long time had been sort of living beyond its means. I think they sort of hit the wall, so to speak, Rick, a little bit sooner than uh, maybe we are here in Ontario. So they've simply had no choice. They had to uh, control spending. They had to, to start get costs under control. In Ontario, we're a bit behind the curve now. Uh, we're starting to see some consequences here, of course. Uh, businesses are actually leaving Ontario, going to Quebec, which is historically very strange. It was always the other way around. Um, and Quebec is, is going further. They're realizing the benefit of, of lower tax and control spending. Um, it, it's probably going to benefit their economy. So, you know, Ontarians should certainly take note and hope that we follow suit uh, as soon as possible. One thing that Ontarians haven't, have taken note of, is you know the the rising hydro bills and those hydro prices. We are looking at an eight percent rebate on those rising hydro costs. Uh, but the premier over the last you know number of weeks has said uh, you know they they made a mistake in in underestimating the impact of these hydro bills. Do you expect something else to be done? Well, look, it's certainly good that the premier recognizes the mistake. It certainly took her and her government long enough to do that. I don't think it's any secret that for years, whether it was the Auditor General, opposition parties, economists, groups like ours were saying, guys, your energy policy is a complete mess. We're glad that better late than never that they figured it out. We're curious to see what on earth they have in mind, other than repealing a lot of the bad regulation they put in place. But hope springs eternal, Rick, so hopefully they could figure out a way. Donald Trump in the U.S. has said, hey, he wants to lower taxes pretty much across the board, except for those ones that, uh, you know, those people that make multi-millions of dollars. Do we see even an overall kind of sense of, hey, we got to lower taxes here in Canada as well? 
Well, I think we need to be looking at that. You know, regardless of anyone's feelings about Donald Trump, the reality is the United States is our, our biggest competitor and trading partner. If they start to cut taxes in a way that really starts to open up a gap between the taxes we pay, that is going to have serious consequences for cost of doing business, for attractiveness in terms of setting up shop, starting a new business. So we need to keep an eye on that. We certainly need to make sure that Ontario and Canada stays competitive. Aaron, uh, thanks for the time today. Enjoy the rest of the day. Thanks for having me, Rick. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.